Okay, well, I don't think I've said this yet, but I'm Ryan White. I am the pastor here at Elam, and it is my joy to be opening up God's Word with you today. If you are, have a Bible with you, uh, we'll be in Ephesians chapter 2 this morning, so you can flip that direction if you'd like. But I have a question. Have you ever had the experience of being welcomed in to a new club? Something that you've long kind of stood on the outside of, but then suddenly circumstances changed, and you are now welcomed and invited to take your place within that community. Think through that. What was required for you to secure your entrance into that group? Well, I think of several examples in my own life, several quote-unquote clubs that I've been a part of. Uh, One, for example, is uh, once Brianna and I got married, we entered into the Married Couples Club. It's a metaphorical club. There's not actual meetings or anything like that, but it was a club that we had been on the outside of during our five years of dating. We were kids, so we dated for a long time. But all of a sudden, we were in. We had a similar experience when... Uh, our first child arrived. When uh, Eliana popped out, we were all of a sudden ushered into the inner sanctum, all sleep-deprived and bedraggled of the new parents' club. And so both of those clubs, we had kind of gotten into by default. Our, Our personal commitments and life decisions had landed us in those communities. But there are some clubs that you don't just stumble into. At 20 years old, I joined another club. I became a Seawolf, which is arguably one of the worst college mascots imaginable. (laughs) You see, in the county that I grew up in, which was Sonoma County in California, there were two institutions of higher learning. There was a community college, Santa Rosa Junior College, and there was a four-year university, Sonoma State, which is one of the many campuses of California State University. And as a student who graduated high school in that county, the doors to the community college were open wide to me. I was welcomed in, and I was able to spend several wonderful years studying in that place. But to become a Sonoma State Seawolf, which it's named after the Jack London novel. It's not actually about the Seawolf-class submarine. There's not actually the mythical Seawolf. It's just because the London family donated a big chunk of money to the school and they invented a mythical creature for it. And it's a wolf with a splash. Like, But, sorry, I digress. <laughs> I digress. Uh, but to become a Seawolf, it was, it was much more complicated. Right? To get into this club, I had to apply to be admitted into membership. And, and I required formal approval from those already in places of power and influence within the community. But that's not all. I also had to pay money to secure my continued position in that club, right? To secure my place, I had to spend time on their home turf, and I had to garb myself in the official attire of a Seawolf, which was the branded, you know, t-shirts and hoodies that you buy at the university store. 
And then I had to switch my allegiances. I had to publicly support the sports teams of my new community. And then and only then would I be a sea wolf in good standing. Only after groveling and the costly outlay of thousands of dollars and, and total assimilation into the campus culture would I be accepted as a true member of the club, which I willingly did. But I will always hate our mascot. And I detail all this because it makes me wonder what is required for us to be welcomed into the club of God's people? How do we gain entrance into God's covenant community? What hoops must we jump through? Who are the gatekeepers, the the church's admissions board? What sort of assimilation is required for us to find a home in God's family? And you see, early on, the ancient Jews realized that it was actually God who had chosen them. They had never really brought much to the table in their relationship. They had been slaves in Egypt, and God, for his own reasons and purposes, had decided to show them mercy and grant their deliverance. It was God's inexplicable and gracious devotion to them that allowed them to be called the adopted sons and daughters of God. Just listen to the Lord's words in Exodus 19. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation." God himself initiated this kind of covenant commitment. And it was his unmerited favor that was the grounds upon which this new family was established. But as the years and the generations progressed, people started to ask the question, how might a non-Jew, someone who was not descended from that ragtag original group of, of rescued slaves, how might they be grafted into this beloved community? How might they, as outsiders, be permitted to join this club? And know beforehand that there was not many Jews who actually wanted outsiders to join their club. Indeed, in the ancient world, the Jews essentially defined themselves by two things, by their special relationship with God and by who they were not. We read about this in that devotional that we're working through as a church, that is Jesus serious? What if Jesus was serious about the church? In it, we read that they said, you will know who we are by what we are not. We are not filthy, idol-worshiping, sexually immoral, pork-eating, unrighteous, scripturally ignorant Gentiles. The Jews had deep contempt for their pagan neighbors, and it was so fierce that they often just referred to them as dogs. And to be fair, the hostility between them and their neighbors was mutual. 
Many Gentiles viewed the Jews with suspicion and with disdain because they had refused to participate in many of the ordinary practices of Roman culture and Roman worship. So even if the hostility, even if that enmity might be able to be overcome, how would a Gentile be brought in to this special relationship? Well, the answer essentially was this. The Gentile had to die and be reborn a Jew. Now, it took place figuratively through the act of baptism. The the new convert was washed clean of their Gentile past, and they emerged from the water a freshly minted member of the club. Yet, now newly born, they, like any newborn Jewish male child, uh, had to kind of adopt the, the rites, the ways, the rituals of Judaism, which meant that first up on the docket was circumcision. And if you don't know what circumcision is, we can talk later or call your mother. But requiring a grown man to be circumcised in order to join God's community was a significant barrier to membership. It was a big ask to which the ancient Jews would say, well, that's on you. If you want to join our club, you've got to be like us. And now we fast forward to our text today, which is Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 22. And the Apostle Paul, he's writing to a growing Christian community in the ancient Greek city of Ephesus. And at the core of this spiritual community are a group of Jews who have come to embrace Jesus as Israel's long-awaited Messiah. He was the promised deliverer who would forgive their sins and renew a right spirit within their hearts. But there's also in Ephesus pagans, Gentiles, who've come to hear the good news of Jesus, of how through his life and his death and his resurrection, he's broken the power of evil and sin and death, and he's making all things new, even Gentiles. But how could these two disparate groups, how could these two communities with different histories and perspectives, with different cultures and different baggage, different ways of thinking and eating and praying and fellowship and and voting and, and navigating life, how could they ever come together in one church? It felt as if the divide was just too great and the hostility too fresh. Surely, Yes, Jews for generations had been following God imperfectly. They had been stumbling repeatedly into faithlessness and into injustice, I guess would be the word for it. But the Gentiles for thousands of years had been bowing themselves down to stone statues and and sleeping with temple prostitutes and calling it worship. The gulf feels so wide 
Could they ever conform to the standards and the ethos of this new club? Maybe the Gentiles would have to remain, we call them affiliated outsiders, kind of the, the redheaded stepchildren of God's family. Not quite in and not quite out. Accepted conceptually, but never embraced. And into this swirl of confusion and questions, this is what Paul writes to this church. He says in verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it's the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Grace is the great equalizer. Grace changes this conversation entirely. No one gets into this club by right, by merit, by effort. There's no legacy admissions and there's no admissions board. Everyone who finds themselves this morning in God's beloved community has gotten here by grace and grace alone. It is the undeserved gift of God so that no one might brag, that so no one could get up on their high horse because it seems that boasting is one of the great destroyers of Christian community. Grace opens the doors. Grace welcomes us in. Grace upholds us, transforms us, preserves us. And the second self-confidence or or self-righteousness enters into this equation, it challenges the efficiency, the effectiveness, the sufficiency, the reality. I'm getting lost in the big words. Challenges the reality of God's grace. Keep thinking about this baptismal. Remember that Jesus' invitation to be baptized was deeply offensive to his earliest followers. But it was something that God commanded as a sign that we should practice, that we should walk in Remember his parting commission in the Gospel of Matthew. All authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Why did baptism ruffle the feathers among Jesus' first disciples? Well, because it was something that Jews did to Gentiles so that their old life might be done away with and they might be reborn, a true member of the nation of Israel. But Jesus here calls everyone who would follow him, Jews and pagans alike, to enter into this metaphorical death And be reborn, not as members of Abraham's family, but as that community of love that exists in heaven between the Trinity. 
We are baptized into the name of each member of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and we emerge from the water part of their community, full participants in their shared life and love and power. Paul puts it this way to the Corinthians in chapter 4. He says, the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all. Therefore, all have died. And he died for all that those who might live no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. There's so much there, but let's try to unpack it. The love of Christ controls us. Why? Well, because Christ died for all. Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross is for each and every one of us who will cling to him in faith. If we trust in Jesus and we depend wholly on his rescue, his death proves effective for us. His blood can wash us clean. His power can break evil's hold in our lives. His presence can heal our brokenness. But this one death for all requires that all must die and be made new. No one gets to stay the same. No one remains unchanged, remains at they are, as they are. We all must make a clean break with our past. We must allow ourselves to be recreated, to start fresh in Jesus. And love controls us because each and every moment Notice what Jesus is up to in the world. He's ever in the business of reconciliation, of reconciling people with their creator, but also reconciling people with one another, with those who are at odds, um, with whom there's wounds, there's hostility, they're estranged. This is Jesus' labor of love, and it should be ours as well. So how Jesus does this, how he creates a new and unified community by his grace, is actually what the rest of Ephesians chapter 2 is all about. And remember... Paul says that we are God's workmanship. It's an interesting turn of phrase. 
Workmanship is the Greek word poema, poema, which is where we get our English word poem. He's saying that the church, this grace-created community, is God's poem to the world. It's his work of art. It's the masterpiece that expresses the inner beauty of his heart. This is God's fresh act of creation. This seemingly mishmash community of once hostile and estranged individuals who are now redeemed and brought together and made one by what he has accomplished in their lives, by the power of his love. The creation of this reconciled and reconciling community is Jesus' special work that he's pouring all of his creativity and attention into. Because it's a poem, right? It's what he's doing in our midst is communicating the form, the pattern, the beauty of his heart. So how does this reconciliation work? Verse 11. Therefore remember that at one time you were called Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. This is true. The Gentiles, like each and every one of us, were far from God. We were ignorant of his ways. We were separated from his goodness by our own self-serving ambitions and our rebellions. We are all sinners in need of grace. And even though God created us in his very image, we have corrupted that image by chasing our own fallen ends. And it's all accurate. But this is also the guilt, the shame, the condemnation that the Gentiles brought to the table with them as they approached God and his community. This is what was. But now, we read in verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us one, made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. Paul in the big words. Jesus has broken down the dividing walls of hostility that have existed between us and God. It's not that God didn't love us, but a holy and a righteous God, the ultimate goodness in all existence, cannot truck with our sin. He cannot tolerate the vandalism of evil in his good world. It had to be dealt with. And the way it was dealt with is that Jesus stood in the gap for us. The only person who was not alienated from God, 
The only person who was wholly perfect and stood under no condemnation, God himself in the flesh, stood as our substitute. He bore the just punishment that we deserved. He took on the the enmity of our guilt and our shame, and he made compensation. He made recompense for the debts that we incurred. He paid our fines. He served our sentence. He satisfied every claim against us, and he abolished all condemnation against us. And even now stands as our advocate. He made a way for us to find peace with God. But this divine reconciliation actually spills out and overflows from that vertical relationship onto our horizontal relationships with one another. Verse 15. That he might create in himself one new man in the place of the two, so making (coughs) peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and he preached peace to those who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. He's come to end the hostility between us. He did it by preaching peace to those who are close to God, the Jews, peace to those who are far off, the Gentiles. Both communities were invited to the waters of baptism to experience repentance and new life, to make a real break with their past, a real break with their sin, a real break with the harm that they have inflicted upon others, and to start life anew. And it wasn't sweeping harm under the rug. This isn't waving our hands and saying things aren't that bad. It isn't, I'm okay, you're okay, nobody's perfect, we'll just tolerate one another, let's coexist. It's actually the opposite of that. True reconciliation brings all of our junk out into the light without fear. Why? Because Jesus has already atoned for it. He's already dealt with it. He's already covered it, paid the penalty. When we cling to his grace, he washes us clean. You're forgiven and your future is secure in his love. This allows you to navigate a reconciliation conversation without defensiveness and in total honesty. Because yes, you'll be exposed as a sinner in need of grace. But that is exactly what you are and exactly why he ended up on that cross for us. Acknowledging the awful things that we've said and done, turning from them and throwing ourselves upon God's mercy is part and parcel with receiving grace. And such grace allows us to forgive those who have wounded us. Since God in Christ was reconciling the world to himself, not counting men's sins against them, we too can free them from an accounting for the wrongs they've perpetrated against us. 
God's already forgiven it. How can you demand retribution when God has paid both their debt and yours? Remember how we pray, Lord, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. I actually like to think of it this way. I think Jesus invites us to see one another through a filter. Two weeks in a row, we're going to talk about filters. But this is not Pastor Andrew's air filter. This is more like an Instagram filter. This is something that interposes between us and everyone else, that that comes between us and allows us to see one another differently. We are invited to see each and every person, not through rose-colored glasses, but through blood-tinted glasses. We see them through the tint of Christ's shed blood. Because even if they don't acknowledge Christ, we see them through what he's done. And we realize that this is someone so beloved by their, our Savior that even in their brokenness, he gave his life to save them. They are a sinner for whom grace was dearly purchased, just like us. And that ought to soften our hearts towards them. Because of what Jesus has done, because of his finished work on the cross, we have every resource we need to be a reconciling and reconciled community. God's grace is sufficient to wash us clean. It's sufficient to make us new. It is also sufficient to make us one. And he ends this way. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens. You are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is how God's grace works in the present. We're baptized into that loving community of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and we have to dwell together in that communion because that is how he makes us one. He makes us one when we abide together in God's presence, when we worship together, when we pray together, when we wrestle with Scripture together, when we confess our sins together, when we repent together, when we surrender together to the transforming work of God's Spirit in our lives. It's God's grace that brings us together. It's God's grace that makes us effective. It is God's grace that makes us one. And I love how our devotional summed it up this week. Imagine the shock when a new community where Jews and Gentiles worshiped 
together emerged. When they shared a table, when they called one another brothers and sisters, it was scandalous. Rather than defining themselves by their hatred for one another, with the church, both Jews and Gentiles learned to release their hate and instead define themselves based on Christ's love. That is quite simply Paul's message for us this morning. We are a grace-created community, and grace is our DNA, and grace is our future, and we are one by staying together in the presence of our amazing God and letting him do his work among us. And as he does his work, as we give one another, we see one another through those red-tinted glasses, through that filter, he does his work and makes us one. So we're going to end today as the worship teams come forward. I just want to read these verses over you once again. Some of them. But I'm going to do it in a different translation because I want your ears to hear it slightly differently. This comes from the voice translation, and I just love the language. So let these words rest upon you. Maybe even put your hands out in front of you, open to receive these words from the Lord. For it is by God's grace that you have been saved. You receive it through faith. It was not our plan or our effort. It is God's gift, pure and simple. You didn't earn it. Not one of us did. So don't go around bragging that you must have done something amazing. For we are the product of his hand, heaven's poetry etched on our lives, created in the anointed Jesus to accomplish the good works God arranged long ago. We were hopelessly stranded without God in a fractured world. But now, because of Jesus, the anointed, and his sacrifice, all of that has changed. God gathered you who were far away and brought you near to him by the royal blood of the anointed, our liberating king. He is the embodiment of our peace, sent once and for all to take down the great barrier of hatred and hostility that has divided us so we can be one. In him you are being built together, creating a sacred dwelling place among you where God can live in his spirit. Dear God, Lord, if any of us feel like there is a barrier to entry, may we hear your words that you have taken down those barriers on our behalf. It's not what we do. It's not how hard we work. It's not how much we clean up our lives ahead of time. You bid us to come to you, to meet you at the waters, and you wash us clean. You give us a break with our past. You make us new. 
But God, what is true for us is true for others. They too can make a break from their past. They too can be made clean and made new. And may we receive them as you see them. Beloved sons and daughters who you are writing into a poem of your love. God, we live in a divided, hostile, tribal culture. But what is true out there, may it not be true in here. Maybe we be one in your way, one in your truth, one in your life. In Jesus' name, amen.